you will please take your Bibles, join me in Daniel chapter 2. Daniel chapter 2, we're making our way through this book on Wednesday nights. We are now at the end of this chapter. Remember that God gave Nebuchadnezzar a dream. Nebuchadnezzar is the king of Babylon. It troubled his spirit. And he demanded of his wise men, you tell me the dream and the interpretation, or else. (laughs) I'll cut you in pieces, I'll destroy your house. And of course, they could not do this. Well, this infuriates the king, and he issues a command for all the wise men to be destroyed. And that included Daniel at this point. He's now graduated out of their three-year program, and he's in this group, so his life is now on the line. And uh, obviously it includes uh, Hananiah, Azariah, and Mishael as well. These Hebrew captives, that first wave of captives that Nebuchadnezzar took out of the nobles of Judea. And long story short, Daniel informs the king, I can give you the dream and the interpretation. (laughs) Oh, boom, amen. That's some faith right there. And the king does grant him some time. Daniel goes home. He informs his three friends, let's pray. They pray for God to be merciful and to give them, to reveal to them this dream and the interpretation. And of course, God does. Daniel, remember, he's brought back in before the king, and the king asked him, Art thou able to make known unto me the dream which I have seen and the interpretation thereof? Daniel basically says, No, not from my wisdom, but there's a God in heaven. Amen. And so he's letting Nebuchadnezzar know where he's getting this from, and this will be important later in this this message tonight. But Daniel, remember, he's minimizing himself. He's magnifying God. That's how our trials ought to be viewed. And he then proceeds to tell the king about his dream, this great image. It had a head of gold. It had chest and arms of silver. It had belly and thighs of brass. had legs of iron. And it had feet of iron and, and clay mix. And we saw how this great image was representative of four consecutive empires. The first was the Babylonian kingdom. That's the one Nebuchadnezzar is ruling over here. Remember Daniel said, Thou art the head of gold. There's no denying that part. We know from history that the the, the silver was the Persian empire or the the Medo-Persian empire, whatever you want to call it. And then came the Greek empire and finally the Roman empire. But also remembered, more importantly, was there was a stone that appeared that was cut out of a mountain without hands. And and this stone smote this image upon its feet, caused the whole thing to uh, be broken to pieces, ground into powder, the wind, like the chaff, carries it away. And the stone became a great mountain and filled the entire earth. And the stone was a picture of God's kingdom established by the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. We're told in verse 44 that the God of heaven set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed, and the kingdom shall not be left to other people. And this is the kingdom that we're born again into. Except you be born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. And all of this was told some 600 years before Christ's birth. This is amazing prophecy here. And before these empires, other than Babylon of course, before these empires ever existed, we have this proof here that God does, in fact, know the end from the beginning. In fact, this book is written with such detail concerning the future that it has caused the 
You ever wonder how somebody is, is known as a scholar? I, I can't figure this out because everybody they quote as a scholar is a numbskull. Have you, have you seen that? It's like, well, the scholars now say that, uh, well, there's no way Daniel was written when, when we think it was. It had to be written after the fact. And the earliest writings out there by the scholars, quote-unquote, are the second century B.C. <laughs> so <laughs> I guess you have to be a biblical moron to be a scholar. I, I don't know. But, and, and just think about how dangerous it is even to suggest something like that, that the book of Daniel wasn't written by Daniel in the captivity. If you have that opinion and, and somebody presents that as truth, if that's the conclusion, can't you just easily conclude that Jesus wasn't the Christ? Because He must be a liar because He referred to Daniel the prophet. And a prophet foretells of things. Right? A prophet doesn't record things that happen. He foretells of things that are going to happen. So it's a dangerous thing to even go down that path. But this is a great prophecy. If you missed any of the messages so far in this chapter, please go back and listen. There's way more than I can recap uh, here. For tonight, let's pick back up where we left off by reading verses 46 through 49. And this is after Daniel has, has told him the dream is certain, the interpretation is sure, and then we get this. Then the king Nebuchadnezzar fell upon his face and worshipped Daniel and commanded that they should offer an oblation and sweet odors unto him. The king answered unto Daniel and said, Of a truth it is that your God is a God of gods and a Lord of kings and a revealer of secrets, seeing thou couldest reveal this secret. Then the king made Daniel a great man and gave him many great gifts and made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon and chief of the governors over all the wise men of Babylon. Then Daniel requested of the king, and he set Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego over the affairs of the province of Babylon. But Daniel sat in the gate of the king. There's always been debate as to whether or not Nebuchadnezzar was ever converted in his lifetime. The question is often pondered, will we see Nebuchadnezzar in heaven? And it's an amazing thought, just to pause for a minute and think that this man who took Judea captive, destroyed Jerusalem in a very brutal fashion, that he could actually be in heaven. Well, we'll consider that as we continue through the next two chapters. Because what we see in Nebuchadnezzar's life is definitely God's at work in his heart. Just think for a minute, why did God give this dream to such a pagan man? God is working here. He is softening the heart of this king. And whether he ever came to a saving faith, I'll give you my opinion at the end of chapter 4. But I believe we are safe to say at this point, he is not yet there. When you read and you break this down, the language in verse 46 really kind of shows us that he said some great things, but he's, he's not quite there yet. Nebuchadnezzar fell upon his face to worship who? Daniel. That's a problem right there. He's not worshiping the God of heaven. Now, falling upon your face in that culture, it, it was a common thing to do for somebody that you held in high respect. And we see Joseph's brothers doing that to Joseph in Genesis chapter 50 after Jacob the father had died. And they come in and they bow down before their, their brother. But what Nebuchadnezzar doing here is going well beyond just cultural respect. He, he's worshiping this man. 
And what else would compel a, a wicked, proud king to bow before a captive servant? <laughs> Something's happening here in the king's mind, and he is viewing Daniel in a way that no man is to be viewed. And, and so this goes beyond respect, and, and, and now we're looking at worship. And, and listen, there are many, maybe not many, I don't know, but I'll say many, there, there's many people that probably are worthy of our respect, but no man is worthy of our worship. And so Nebuchadnezzar here, he's not there yet. He, he's, something's working inside of him, but, but he's not there yet. He's worshiping a man. And any godly believer is going to try to prevent such behavior. Remember when Peter went to Cornelius. Now, that's an interesting account because Cornelius was a man that God praised. He had a lot of good things to say about Cornelius. And, but Peter had to go to actually lead him to the Lord. He was doing a lot of things right, but he was still out. And so he goes to Cornelius, and Cornelius fell down at Peter's feet, and he worshipped him. But of course, Peter, he takes him up, he says, Stand up, I myself also am a man. Don't worship me. And then we learn that even angels aren't to be worshipped. Amen. That's important. How many times we hear testimonies of people that saw something? Even angels ain't supposed to be worshipped. I know that's not good English, but whatever. And, and even though we were created a little lower than the angels, remember in the Revelation, John, he, he bows at, at an angel and he begins to worship the angel. And the angel says, don't do it. Stand up. I'm your fellow servant. And so when you study how uh, Nebuchadnezzar worships Daniel here, you, you'll see that every occurrence of this word, remember at this point it's being written in Aramaic, and, and every time you see this Aramaic word, it's only in chapter 2, and it's going to be about 10 times in chapter 3. This idea of what Nebuchadnezzar is doing as worship is always connected to idolatry. Uh, he's going to set up an image in the next chapter, and he's going to command people to bow down and worship, right? So this is always connected to idolatrous worship. And the corresponding Hebrew word is found four times in, a, in the book of Isaiah. That's the only four times it's used. But it's always in reference to worshiping an idol. So you get the picture here? When Nebuchadnezzar worships Daniel, he's worshiping Daniel like he's another one of his idols. And this was not unusual in cultures like Babylon that were polytheistic and had a bunch of gods, and you just bow down to all these different gods. So really what he's doing, he's bringing Daniel right up with those idols. And I thought about, remember in, in Acts uh, chapter 14, Paul heals a, a crippled man in Lystra, and the people began to worship Paul. They began to worship them, and they say the gods have come. I might actually have it written down here. Why am I trying to do this? The gods are come down to us in the likeness of men. That's the way these cultures thought. And so Nebuchadnezzar sees Daniel as a god in flesh. It is a god that has come down to be worshipped. And so we see this further in, in the next statement at the end of verse 46 when the king commanded that they should offer an oblation and sweet odors unto him. Unto who? Unto Daniel. And so he makes a sacrifice to his idol, Daniel, not God. 
Now, there, there's some who say, well, he didn't actually make a sacrifice. He only commanded that there be a sacrifice, but whatever you decide there, whatever. So you may be wondering, if Peter told another man, don't worship me, then why isn't Daniel telling the king not to worship him? Well, perhaps he did, and it's not recorded. Study the Bible long enough, and you'll wish more was recorded. <laughs> okay. Um, some have speculated that perhaps Daniel did say something. Uh, maybe he did openly object to this worship in between verses 46 and 47 because of how verse 47 begins. There's a lot of people who feel that he probably did say something, and the king answered unto Daniel whatever Daniel may have said. I'm not sure that's the case, but that's an opinion that's out there. And because the king answered, some say it implies Daniel must have said something in order to be answered, but the king just very well, it may just mean he's answering what he was told. So it could be Daniel rejected, don't do this, but the king does it anyway. And what are you going to tell a king? (laughs) I mean, you're a captive. Don't do it. I, I command you not to do this, king. Well, this kind of guy, he could change his temperament like that, and there's off with your head. So we don't know for sure, but we'll, we'll leave it alone. And, and there's no telling what he, what he may have done if Daniel would have rejected or resisted in, in a way that would have been crossing a line. And so even if he did try to prevent it, you can't stop the king from doing what the king wants to do. Now, I want us to consider what's taking place here because it's really quite sad when you think about the whole context of the interpretation and what we just read tonight. We, we have um, Daniel saying some very strong things about the God of heaven. And the response of Nebuchadnezzar is to worship Daniel. You ever witness to somebody and you're, you're almost baffled that they just can't connect the dots? That, that they just, they're just not getting it? Maybe they're making religious statements but, but they're not there. They're, they're not there yet. They're missing the obvious. <laughs> Daniel just told the king how the revelation of the dream and the interpretation of the dream had nothing to do with Daniel, but that it had everything to do with the God of heaven. And he even spoke about this stone that was cut out of a mountain without hands, or, or cut out without hands, and would have become a great mountain and, and fill the earth and... God, he says, the God of heaven. He says it again. He's going to set up a perpetual kingdom. It's never going to be destroyed. And yet, after hearing all of this about God, Nebuchadnezzar falls down and he worships Daniel. Do you see the disconnect? I mean, it's like sometimes you witness to people and you think, my goodness, was I that blind back then? Yeah. Yeah. And so... Here's Nebuchadnezzar, he's just not getting it, and he even makes a sacrifice to Daniel. Now, Daniel did all he could do to direct the king's attention Godward. When you, when you read the interpretation, he, he did all he knew to do, and in fact, really, this is God who's doing this. God is trying to reach the heart of this king. God gave the king the, the dream. God gave the interpretation to God's people to give to the king. And so God's trying to get a hold of of Nebuchadnezzar here through this dream. But the king is still missing it. And can you imagine how frustrating it must have been for Daniel to hear what the king says next in verse 47? 
Of a truth, it is that your God is a God of gods and a Lord of kings and a revealer of secrets, seeing thou couldst reveal this secret. This is interesting. He's, he's missing it, and yet he's so close. And when you think about what King Nebuchadnezzar has just said, he really is recognizing the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. He, he says, God of gods, which represents the Father. Lord of kings represents the Son. And the revealer of secrets, according to 1 Corinthians 2.10, is the Holy Spirit. Now, that'll be even more interesting if you hang on to that thought when we get to chapter 3. And Nebuchadnezzar throws three men into the fire, but then he sees a fourth, and he says the fourth is like unto the Son of Man. And just interesting things to ponder here as God is working to soften the heart of this king. But, but for now, look at how close Nebuchadnezzar seems to be to the truth. He calls the uh, God, the God of gods, and the Lord of kings, but did you catch how he only refers to it as Daniel's God? He says, your God is a God of gods. And so he's still guilty here of elevating Daniel. And though Nebuchadnezzar acknowledges Daniel's God as a revealer of secrets, he still gives the credit to Daniel at the end of verse 47, seeing thou couldst reveal this secret. Wait a minute, Daniel just told him, I'm not the one that's doing this. And so the king here is still looking to Daniel as this idol. And after hearing all this, I'd imagine Daniel's ready to beat his head against the wall. You know, come on, man. How can you not get this? What are you missing? You ever been there? Daniel has minimized himself. He has magnified his God. He's given God all the glory. He told the king he couldn't reveal this thing of himself. He talked about the God of heaven establishing a kingdom far greater than any earthly kingdom. And yet the king still worships Daniel. Though the king says some things which indicate an amount, a certain amount of understanding, it is clear that the message has yet to reach his heart. And that's the problem, isn't it? So what can we learn from this? Having a head knowledge of God isn't enough to be saved. Come on, preachers, Wednesday night. Being close is still to be completely out of touch. Being near is not being in. Having an esteem for a child of God as he did for Daniel isn't to be a child of God. Having a religious understanding of God is not having a relationship with God. And so I have to ask even tonight, is there anyone here that does not know Christ? You still have yet to enter into a relationship with Him. Maybe you have the head knowledge, but God still doesn't possess your heart. Maybe you're still only recognizing the God of another. Well, my dad, my mom, our church. Why isn't it yours? Maybe you're like Agrippa, and you've only reached to the point of almost being persuaded to be a Christian. Maybe like Nebuchadnezzar, you can say that God is a God of gods and a Lord of kings. You can recognize that, but still, God is not the Lord of your life. So are you saved? Have you been born again? I'm not asking do you know about God. 
Do you know God? John 17, 3, and this is life eternal. This is the definition right here of eternal life I'm about to give you from John 17. This is life eternal, that they may know Thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom Thou hast sent. That's it. Do you know Him? The Christian life is all about entering into a relationship with God through Christ's sacrifice. Right? We come in under the new covenant. We enter into a relationship. I got married. I had a holy matrimony. I entered into a marriage covenant. Amen. I have a relationship with my wife. I didn't just say, well, great ceremony. I'll see you next Sunday. I was just thinking that might be kind of advantageous. But yeah, I know. If you can't say, listen, I think they had it right in the Old Testament. You have your tent. I have my tent. Stay away. I'm only teasing. Everybody chill out. If you cannot say for sure that you know him and that he knows you in return, then you need to truly examine yourself to see whether or not you're saved. Matthew 7, 22 and 23, many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name and in thy name cast out devils and in thy name done many wonderful works? In other words, didn't we live a good life? I mean... We, we preached, we cast out devils, we, we went to the print press on Mondays and Tuesdays, and we, we went to hand out flyers downtown on Thursday, and we, we, we did all these things. And then will I profess unto them, Jesus says, I never knew you. Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. Listen, you may be close, but you may not be in. And Christ did not endure the wrath of God just so you can hope that you know. You can know so, and God wants you to know so. If you have any doubts, we'd love to help you tonight. Well, let's finish this chapter by looking at the last two verses. Look again at verse 48. Then the king made Daniel a great man and gave him many great gifts and made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon and of the chief of the governors over all the wise men of Babylon Then Daniel requested of the king, and he said, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego over the affairs of the province of Babylon. But Daniel sat in the gate of the king. I want you to notice in verse 48, we see the earthly wisdom of man. Man believes that money and power will make someone great. Nebuchadnezzar, quote, made Daniel a great man. How? He gave him money and he gave him power gave him great gifts, that's the wealth. He gave him position, that's his power. But don't be fooled. Neither of these are what makes somebody great. We have plenty of examples to draw from, from the world of people who have made a lot of money, people who have risen to great positions of power, and yet they're as wicked as can be. They're not great. Jeremiah 9, 23 and 24, Thus saith the Lord, let not the wise man glory in his wisdom, neither let the mighty man glory in his might. Let not the rich man glory in his riches, but let him that glorieth glory in this, that he understandeth and knoweth me, that I am the Lord which exercise loving kindness, judgment and righteousness in the earth, for in these things I delight, saith the Lord. Wisdom is to be pursued. I understand that. 
Strength is a blessing. Hallelujah. Riches are fine to possess so long as they don't possess you. But never forget that we are only sojourners and we are pilgrims in this world. We're strangers in a foreign land tonight. No amount of prestige, no amount of wealth we may gain here can be taken there. Matthew 6, 19-21 Lay not up for yourselves treasure upon earth where moth and rust doth corrupt and where thieves break through and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasure in heaven where neither moth nor rust doth corrupt and where thieves do not break through nor steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. I, I know we're getting back to the fundamentals tonight, but it's okay. Mark chapter 8, verses 36 and 37. For what shall it profit a man if he shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul? Or what shall a man give in exchange for his soul? So I, I hope you're laying up more store in heaven than you've acquired and achieved down here. It's going to be a sad day for some of us when we stand before our Master and we give an account. How sad that many will have lived more for man's praise than they did for God's glory. Don't seek to be great in man's eyes, but seek to be greatly beloved by God. We'll see that mention of Daniel three times before this book is out. He was greatly beloved. Seek to be one who is after God's own heart. And then you allow God to direct the rest. Amen. In other words, what I'm saying is, you let God determine your next step. You let God determine what you're going to do in this life. You let God determine whether you're going to be rich or poor. You let God determine whether you're going to have a great position or not. Amen. Now listen, I'm all for bettering yourself. That's fine. I, I did that in my military career. You promote and you, and I became an officer and I tried to better myself. That's fine. But you got to keep everything in perspective. Listen, the Bible says promotion cometh neither from the east or the west nor the south, but God is the judge. He putteth down one and he raises up another. So, so don't seek what man seeks after. And should God elevate you, praise God for it, but use it for the glory of God. Now, about the king making Daniel great, I like what Matthew Henry wrote. It says this, God made him a great man indeed when he took him into communion with himself. Let me read that again. God made Daniel a great man indeed when he took him into communion with himself. A greater man than than Nebuchadnezzar could make him. But because God had magnified Daniel, therefore the king magnified Him. You see, it's all about God. It's God doing a work in our life. I don't care how much blood, sweat, and tears you put into it. You need God on your side. And what a promotion this was for Daniel. Amen. I I mean, Daniel becomes the ruler over the province, the capital province of the entire Babylonian Empire. He wasn't ruler over the entire empire, but he's ruler over this province. This is amazing. Daniel becomes the chief governor over all the wise men of Babylon. And and the best of the best were assigned there at Babylon. And Daniel's now in charge of them all. This was the providence of God at work. It was God working in the heart of a pagan king to elevate a captive 
Hebrew into this great position. Daniel, listen to me, Daniel honored God, God honored Daniel. If you're not honoring God with your life, why are you asking for all these great blessings? Aren't we supposed to ask God? Yeah, go ahead and ask Him. But you better start honoring Him. Come on now, help me preach here. Because too many people want to look at God and say, you owe me, you ought to do this, why didn't you come through? I asked you, you didn't do it. I, I, I rang the doorbell, you didn't answer. I rubbed the lamp, you didn't come out. I did all these, no, no, no. Are you honoring God? What do you mean? Are, are, are you faithful? I just don't know why God didn't do that. Well, it, it could be you've been out of church for the last three months. Well, that wasn't supposed to touch a nerve on Wednesday night. Now, look, don't, don't put words in my mouth. I'm not suggesting you honor God and you're going to be this rich, powerful person. That's not what I'm talking about. Because... You honoring God and God honoring you is manifested in all kinds of blessings. It may not necessarily even be physical things. But God will bless us in this life below and certainly in the life to come. Verse 49, we see Daniel uses his favor to have Hananiah, Azariah, and Mishael, his companions, his prayer laborers. They were praying together for this. And he uses his position to elevate his buddies. This sounds like the good old boy network, doesn't it? We always hated that in the military. Like, oh, that's your buddy. Well, whatever. Uh, we have biblical proof now that maybe that's biblical. <laughs> and so Daniel, he goes to the king. He's got all this favor right now. He uses it to his advantage. He says, hey, you know, I got these three, three friends. Anyway, he gets them a position, an elevated position to assist in the affairs of the province of Babylon. And we see that Daniel sat in the gate. This means he was a chief officer. He was the, the closest counselor to Nebuchadnezzar. He's in a very high position. And this is absolutely amazing. How, the, how a Hebrew captive can be elevated to such great leadership in the province of Babylon. Isn't it amazing? I, I want to go off on a preaching storm there, but I, I'm running out of time. But isn't it amazing that in a wicked foreign land, he, he doesn't have access to the temple and, and all those things that, that accompanied all this. And yet here's this man, he's living godly and God is elevating him. I don't like the direction of our nation any more than you do. But it's still possible to live godly and it's still possible for God to elevate you and to prosper you. And so here's Daniel, and he's, he's been elevated now. He, he's now a top dog in the province, basically, outside the king. He's, he's a servant being placed in a position of authority. Proverbs 29.2, When the righteous are in authority, the people rejoice. Amen. Why aren't we rejoicing right now? Because the righteous are not in authority in America. It's okay to say amen. In case you haven't noticed, our president and his whole family is a bunch of crime-ridden problems. That's a fact. I'm not saying Trump doesn't have his problems either. Amen? You know what we need? We need some godly people. We need God to raise up some godly people to be in positions of leadership. Why? Because when the righteous are in authority, the people rejoice. We need God desperately in our nation. 
And if God could elevate Joseph in Egypt, if He could elevate Daniel in Babylon, and He could elevate Esther and Mordecai in Persia, and God can elevate some people in America today. We need to pray for His mercy. No matter what God wills within our nation and our government, it cannot change our behavior as citizens of heaven. And, and that's really one of the overarching things I think we see here with Daniel. is He's been uprooted from, from Judea and he's now in this pagan land and yet he's living righteously. He's shining as lights. He's blameless and harmless. The Son of God without rebuke in the midst of a perverse and crooked nation. And that's what we're to be as citizens of God. We can live that way no matter what the culture does. And the culture is going to continue to be more paganized. But let not your heart be troubled. What do we see here in chapter 2? God's in complete control. He knows if America is going to fall and win and how. He knows whether we're going to see a revival. And I hope you're praying for revival. I don't believe God's done yet or else we'd all be out of here. So in closing, number one, are you saved? Do you have a personal relationship with God? Not can you say these things like Nebuchadnezzar about God, not that you can praise God's people, but do you know God? Has it reached your heart? Don't be like Nebuchadnezzar here at the end of chapter 2. Nebuchadnezzar here is basically a Baptist who's lost. Isn't he saying the right things? Oh yeah, God's a God of gods. He's a Lord of kings. He's a revealer of secrets. I, I know that. But then you go and worship your idol. If you are saved, what are you pursuing? Don't buy the lie that money and power will make you great. Not too long ago, I read an article about a billionaire who jumped out of a window of a skyscraper and killed himself. He had all the money and power you could want. Don't fall for the lie that somehow that's going to bring you happiness and joy and peace. Don't pursue the riches and positions in this world thinking you'll be happier. But please hear my heart tonight, and God's heart more importantly. Pursue God. Pursue God. Let God take control of your life. Let Him have your heart. He'll take care of the rest. I can promise you that. Let's pray.